This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the bowtie bandit of blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Proficiency testing referral can lead to serious sanctions against your laboratory. Today, uh, we'll discuss what proficiency testing is, why it's so important for laboratory medical directors, administrators, supervisors, and staff to be aware of these PT referral rules. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Brad Karen, Division Chair of Clinical Core Laboratory Services for the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Karen. Well, thank you, Justin, for the chance to be here, and it's a pleasure to uh, sit down and talk about a subject near and dear to me, PT referral, which is probably not on people's top of their list for exciting lab topics, but as we'll find out in the next few minutes, can get labs into a lot of trouble. I know. I, I think it's something that uh, when I have learners, uh, it's it's something we kind of struggle with to sort of introduce them to proficiency testing. It's it's not the the uh, very sexy topic, I suppose. It, maybe you could start us off. What is proficiency testing? So proficiency testing or PT is basically a blind challenge, and outside. Uh, group or company, a PT provider, sends you a vial if you're doing blood testing, a vial of substance that's usually not actual blood because it has to be shipped and handled differently, but it's a vial of a blood-like substance which a lab is going to test as a blinded challenge, send those results back to the PT provider. The PT provider would get results from many different labs and using pre-established criteria on accuracy decide whether that lab has got the correct accurate answer whether they passed that proficiency test. PT testing has been around for decades but it became an industry uh, after the clinical laboratory improvement amendments CLIA which were passed in 88 implemented in the early 1990s required uh, PT for um, the 83 regulated analytes. So when mm -hmm. the CLIA law was written uh, at the time, this is back in 1988, a while ago, uh, they d defined 83 tests and testing activities that were so important that if a lab did any of these 83 activities or tests, they must enroll in this blinded challenge, proficiency testing, from a company, a PT provider that was a CMS-approved PT provider. Um, they're also defined, you have to do three surveys a year that have five challenges each for most surveys. Passing is getting at least four out of five right. So the CLIA laws defined a need for PT testing and that made PT providers and this PT testing sort of a, a big industry. Um, one thing to note, accrediting agencies, so if you're just CLIA accredited, you only have to do PT for 83 regulated tests and activities, you may choose to do more just to know that your lab's doing a good job. But accrediting agencies can require PT for tests that an accrediting agency would deem important, even if they're not on that list of 83 re regulated analytes. I see. So just to hop in before we lose the, lose the clinicians that are listening saying, oh my God, okay, I don't, maybe this podcast, this particular episode isn't for me. I guess it really highlights your point of it, it ensures that we're doing a good job in our lab, right? I mean, I can, I can run a, a kit assay in my lab. I think most physicians sort of just assume that, you know, all of our tests, it's 
going to be giving the same answer all the time and maybe even assume that it's almost uh, a perfect assay. But uh, proficiency testing really ensures that what I'm doing in my lab, I'm actually getting the accurate results. Is Yeah, so it's part of a quality system in a lab. And again, quality is often assured. You get an answer back, a number back from the lab. It must be right for the clinicians out there, and we hope in our laboratories that's true. But our quality systems in the lab, oftentimes we can only look at the answers we're getting today versus what we got yesterday on our quality control materials, and we have internal systems. But PT is really unique in that it challenges us. We're going to take a blinded sample, send it back to a company, and they're going to have accuracy criteria uh, versus either the truth or a peer mean, different, mm-hmm. we can get finer into the weeds, but really requires us to prove to an external group, a PT company, um, that we can do these tests right. And if we don't, there's going to be a mandate that we investigate why we're not getting the right answer and correct it. And if we continue to fail our PT challenges, then our accrediting agency or regulated agency, Center for Medicare Services, is going to tell us to stop doing that test. I see. So maybe you could, uh, for if I'm running a, an assay, um, you know, I'm, I'm a I'm a bloody banker. So <laughs> maybe if I if I'm doing uh, cross match testing, uh, you know, what's uh, what's the big deal if I uh, send that uh, out uh, that proficiency sample out? I guess I wouldn't send out normally a, a cross match uh, test that I that I do in my lab. But that's really the big scare or fear people have, right? Is uh, you send me a proficiency testing and I send it to another lab. What's the situation? Why does that happen? Yeah, so now we're getting into proficiency testing referral, which is the risk. So the CLIA law itself mandates that for these 83 tests and activities, and cross-matching is one of those, if you do cross-matching, you must enroll in a survey and you must send your results back to the PT provider and you have to pass. So the CLIA law itself said that if you intentionally send out your blinded challenge or PT survey to another lab, either to make sure that your answer matches their answer or just because you're worried you won't get the right answer, you trust the other lab more than your own lab, that they will sanction labs very severely for intentional cheating that would Mm -hmm. be viewed by most people. If you are taking somebody else's answer on the test, (laughs) that most people say that's cheating. So... PT referral uh, intentionally is written into the CLIA law that's cheating, and there will be very severe sanctions against labs. Basically, for intentional PT cheating, the lab will be have their CLIA license revoked. That means that lab cannot perform for perform or bill for any testing for a minimum of one year, and the lab director slash owner will be prohibited from operating a laboratory or being a CLIA director of a laboratory for a minimum period of one year. Okay, so you're talking about my livelihood, so you've got my attention now. <laughs> yes, so exactly. If you are guilty of intentional PT referral, and we'll get into the problems of the way that had been interpreted in the past and still is, but if you are guilty of intentional PT referral, your livelihood's taken away for a minimum of one year, two years and longer is common in the few instances where actually the investigations show the lab intended to cheat a two-year revocation of a CLIA license and prohibition of a owner director from owning directing a lab would be pretty common. And so you're basically saying you're you're not making a living anymore. Okay, so let's see. 
All right. I, I, I promise to uh, abide by and not, not cheat and send out my uh, samples, but I guess slips happen, huh? Yeah. So we get into why would somebody send the PT blind challenge, the proficiency test that came to their lab to another lab. So one reason is I wasn't confident I'd get the right answer. I intended to cheat. And that's what the law was written for. And the wording of the CLIA law says that these penalties, revocation of a CLIA license, bar from directing and owning a laboratory for a minimum of one year, are for intentional PT cheating. But in the vast majority of instances where CMS or accrediting agencies have investigated PT referral, they were accidental. And so basically what would happen, and CrossMatch is not a great example, but oh, uh, uh, let's say a CBC, that's a better example, so the law, CLIA, says that each laboratory has to do their own PT testing. And a laboratory is a CLIA number. And so if you're a laboratory and you're one bill, and in general, a CLIA number is of one physical address. So if you're a lab and all your testing activities are in one building with one CLIA number, your chances of PT referral are probably accidental PT referral are not that great. But let's say you have a stat lab that's in the hospital and two blocks away is your core lab. And when you would get a patient sample, you do a CBC, you would test it if it flagged for some abnormal cell population, you'd send it two blocks away to your core lab to get confirmed. Now those two labs, because they're different physical addresses, almost always have different CLIA licenses. So now if you get your PT survey and it flags and you send it for confirmation, you have just referred your PT. And so the vast majority of PT referrals are accidental and they're treating the PT like a patient sample following a workflow designed for patients, not realizing that you have to treat PT like a patient sample except when it would cross a CLIA license to another lab. Wow, okay, so now I'm understanding here. I mean, we're testing thousands of samples every day and we're doing proficiency testing three times a year. And I could understand where I'm doing thousands of samples every day and I know my protocols, I know my SOP, I'm in my habits. Now it's becoming clear on how it can be uh, an oopsies. Yeah, and the, to compound that, again, both the regulatory, the Center for Medicare Services, and accrediting agencies that also are responsible for overseeing PT testing for the accredited, the labs accredited in their programs, have been stressing for years that they're also worried about labs cheating on PT, even if they don't refer it, that they might, in a patient, they might test it for a cross-match once, but when sample shows up mm -hmm. saying PT survey and they know if I don't get this right, I'm in trouble, they might test that 10 times and take the average mm. or test it five times. So for decades, CMS, accrediting agencies, PT providers have put out the message that you must treat a PT challenge like a patient sample. Mm -hmm. Test it in the same manner if you only test the patient once, only test the PT challenge once, rotate it, have all your testing staff, don't pick your best tech. Oh, I know Johnny's the star of my staff on this shift. I'm only going to have Johnny do PT. So we, the regulatory accrediting agencies have stressed for decades, treat PT like a patient sample or CMS might think you're cheating, except you can't send it between uh, different CLIA labs or CLIA licenses. So it seems like a simple concept, but those two opposing points, treat PT like a patient sample, but don't refer PT, 
can get challenging. And as you said, you get thousands of samples coming through. It's easy to see how the send out person, the bench tech on the night shift can get it wrong. Yeah, so this really falls in your wheelhouse, proficiency testing. I was wondering, over time now, are, are, how, how are we reducing this risk? Because certainly I'm not going to intentionally cheat, but like, I, you know, making a, a mistake certainly is something that I am uh, worried about. What's happening that's working at reducing this uh, risk for me? So the, the uh, initial uh, efforts were really educational, going out to uh, labs and making them aware that yes, you treat PT like a patient sample, except when you don't, you never send it out to a different CLIA number. Um, I would say the big breakthrough happened in 2012. So um, leading up to, so we're talking about late, early 90s, CLIA regulations finalized in early 90s, chugging along through the 90s, labs were obeying CLIA, but there were occasional labs that would get shut down. Into the early 2000s, we started to see more enforcement. Um, there, were, there were accidental PT referrals where a whole laboratory was shut down for uh, one or two years. And so in 2012, uh, various advocacy groups on behalf of laboratory medicine groups, and we're the ones where most it's our livelihood, so various laboratory medicine advocacy groups um, were able to get the TEST Act introduced. So that the, the TEST Act is uh, uh, taking essential steps for testing, TEST Act of 2012. And the TEST Act uh, was passed in 2012, and it was meant to address that the issue of the wording in the CLIA regulation was these, were, these sanctions should happen for intentional referral of PT. Mm-hmm. But the way the Center for Medicare Services implemented it in their regulations was that the basic test was if it happened, it was intentional. Oh, it, it, I guess it's a challenge to how do you get inside somebody's head, huh? Is the Exactly. CMS didn't know, okay, well, we don't know what the intention was and at the time, so therefore if it happened, we're going to assume it was intentional and they, up until 2012, would uh, issue sanctions. Uh, under the Test Act, CMS, uh, what the, uh, the legislation did and its regulations, um, came up with three categories for PT referral. The first category is repeat PT referral. So even if it's accidental, but I did it twice or three times, I'm going to lose my CLIA license. I'm going to get sanctioned. So repeat PT referrals or intentional referral where the results from another lab are used. I'm submitting results from another lab would result in these traditional sanctions, which is revocation of the CLIA license for one or more years and the ban from the director, operator, owner from directing, operating, owning a lab for one year. Join us for the Phlebotomy Conference to be held in Rochester, Minnesota, April 23rd through 24th, 2020. Visit mayocliniclabs.com forward slash 2020 phlebotomy for more information. So I really interpret as a lab director, those of you in training that are listening is, you know, these are, you know, um, I don't know if it's right to say a near miss event sort of treated as like definitely something to learn from, you know, how did this whole, how did the holes line up that it occurred? This is your opportunity to, to patch that uh, hole. Yeah. So while we'll go through, so the test act, that's the first category is repeat or intentional. The second category is 
um, an unintentional referral where I did send my PT sample out to another lab, uh, but I, I realized in the, in the interim that, oh, wait a minute, I shouldn't have done that. I may have even gotten the result back, but I didn't submit the other lab's result as my answer. I realized, oops, I shouldn't have done this. For that second class, CMS can still decide to suspend or limit the CLIA certificate, but it allows them discretion, and many times they'll decide not to limit or suspend the CLIA certificate, but would issue a monetary penalty instead. So paying money isn't fun either, but it's better than losing your ability to operate. And then the third class would be an accidental case where I, I sent out my PT to another lab, but I realized it right away. I called that lab, or that lab maybe got my PT, called me, and said, did you mean to do this? And I say no, and that other lab never does that test. I still need to report that to the CMS or my accrediting agency. But in that case, again, most likely that third class, the least severe, where I did it, but I You called foul first, I, called, I imagine. <laughs> I called foul. I never got that result back, and I submitted only the results of my test. Um, then that would most likely be um, a civil monetary penalty and no action against the CLIA license. I see. So that's really trying to kind of take back or reduce that that risk of sanction. Are there any trends with how laboratory medicine is and how we're evolving where you, you mentioned uh, having a stat lab and a mm -hmm. hospital lab? Are, are there trends like that that are making the risk actually go up uh, for us? Yeah, there are. So again, the TEST Act was passed in 2012, implemented Shortly thereafter, it seemed like for the lab community, that was going to be an answer. But what has then sort of now again, even with the TEST Act, you can have penalties up to losing your CLIA license. What has increased the risk now has been this uh, process or the concept of distributive testing. So distributive testing is when for every test done on a patient, there are always two or more labs involved in the testing. So next-gen sequencing is the example that most people use for classic example of a distributive testing model. Lab A might sequence 500 genes and get this raw data. The, um, that gets informatics pipeline uh, might be done in a cloud-based lab or in a separate physical entity where a whole room of informaticists are doing that. The results may go back to the original lab or even to a third separate facility, so CLIA lab, where the raw sequencing data and the informatics data is put together for a test interpretation. Now for every patient, I have multiple CLIA labs involved in the test. Um, and so that's one example, but there are many more examples. And again, this is really, the trend is technology, right? So we have toxicology labs where all the mass spec is done in site A and all the interpretation of that mass spec is done in site B. Now every drug test is having two CLIA labs. So there are just more and more examples because of how our information flows uh, and, and our, our virtual universe we live in and the podcast we're doing today, <laughs> one example of that. So the challenge has been making sure that we're thinking about PT referral as our testing models change. And mm -hmm. so you still have to do PT for regulated analytes or if defined as required by the accrediting agency, but you have to do PT only for the part you do. Mm -hmm. And that gets more and more complicated, and the examples are the CBC, confirmations, 
Um, one lab does the total protein, the other does the serum electrophoresis. You can come up with hundreds of examples really because of how technology has allowed us to distribute testing that make this uh, very challenging. Wow, and I imagine that one thing in that is with this complexity is as, as lab directors out there, make sure that our uh, test catalog is up to date uh, with our proficiency or with our regulators, because uh, if I discontinue doing a test, if I'm failing to report PT on that or, you know, could I imagine cause, cause issues. So could we maybe think about you know, you have a lot of experience. I know you've uh, done a lot of inspections and have been in, on uh, committees. Uh, what have you learned about what are the most effective strategies that we could do that are going to make this, a, a, you know, minimize this issue? Yeah, and thanks. So I have worked within um, accrediting programs for, for many years, and um, and I know we're in a large organization. We're here at Mayo Clinic. We're in a large organization. So... The most effective approach has been the old-fashioned approach, and one we usually say is the weakest intervention, which is education. Mm -hmm. And so we do here at, at Mayo Clinic Rochester, I believe all the Mayo Clinic sites, uh, but it's very common now to have an annual required education about recognizing PT samples. And the challenge with this, it has to go to absolutely everyone because the workflow, the path of a PT sample, it may come into shipping and receiving, it may come into a, uh, it may uh, bypass the normal person, a challenge, PT challenge goes, it goes directly to the send out person, whether it's the accessioner and you're receiving, the send out person and your, your send out area, a tech in any of your labs, we've got over 60 testing labs here in our practice. So you really, the most effective approach has been yearly education well there are two things first a system to that you when you get pt in it has a common name or number or you put we put a dummy code on so it always says prof so slash so rather than just coming in with a patient number you have a system where you get a pt challenge from any pt provider it's easy to identify it says PROF or CAP or mm -hmm. or FDA or something you know where it's coming from that it is easy to see for anyone that it's a PT challenge but then the education of how to recognize that and what to do it has to be absolutely everyone in the lab. Are there good resources for this education um, that are out there? Or, or is every uh, lab kind of left to their own to create uh, content? Well, so CMS has a brochure, I think there'll be a link in this about to the podcast about PT referral. Um, advocacy groups uh, and accrediting agencies would have some resources and examples, College of American Pathology, Joint Commission, AABB, um, uh, other lab advocacy groups would be good sources to go to for um, examples of educational materials and uh, how labs have implemented a uh, system and education system and identification system to prevent PT referral. Mm -hmm. In your experience uh, being on committees, uh, doing inspections at hospitals, I mean, is there anything that's come up and is really kind of surprised, or what surprised you most about this, this issue of uh, PT and referral? Uh, so I, I think... Um, 
you know, I think what I'd say what surprised me most is that um, I think labs get it now for the most part. They understand how serious it is, but um, not that many have implemented real systems. So again, they may allow PT to go to many different people in the organization. They may not have a clear system to identify a PT challenge and make it obvious that it is there. And um, they haven't done universal education. So again, the send out people are probably the most common thing is that it's uh, part of a test or a test that isn't done in house or the test is down. And so they're sending out patient samples now and they haven't put in a really, a really good system so that it gets to the send out person and they're relying on that person to realize, hey, this is a PT challenge. We shouldn't be sending this out. I see. So to recap this podcast, I think for the clinicians that are listening, this is really a message on uh, proficiency testing. What your lab is uh, assuredly doing is something that's uh, that's what's that external quality control that the results you are getting are, are results that you can believe in. And then for our uh, medical laboratory technologists that are uh, listening to the podcast, I, I guess take-home messages would be to understand some of the regulatory background around this, uh, the Test Act in 2012, to understand what the trends are that are both um, increasing the risk of this referral, uh, PT referral uh, to occur, and also what are some of the strategies that have been shown effective to reduce it, maybe also explain why there is an, an annual uh, uh, education that, yeah. that pops up in our in our learning profiles every year. <laughs> yeah, and we've actually gone a step further. We have required education for all anybody in our system that holds a CLIA lab director certificate. They do annual education to stress the importance because in the end, all things fall on the CLIA lab director. If something fails in the quality system, and certainly if there are sanctions, PT referral, you can say, well, it was the send app person or was this part of the system that failed. In the end, it's the lab directors listening. We own this. I'm a CLIA lab director. We own this. And if you don't have a good system now, go start thinking about it. I guess that would be the main message from me. So most people know my, my heart beats for medical education. I want to ask you, I mean, since you've really uh, been integral to our chemistry curriculum uh, here at Mayo Clinic, how do you approach training uh, pathology residents and, and um, maybe also fellows and in understanding proficiency testing and maybe some of those ends is out, not only what they're responsible for, but also, you know, how do they troubleshoot a proficiency failure? It's kind of a topic that I imagine it's, it's sometimes difficult to introduce to a trainee. And I was kind of curious about how do you do that? Yeah. So it's a universal topic. Every residency is teaching this. They have to be um, and I, I'm the residency program director for another few months here at Mayo Clinic. We'll be moving out of that role, but we do it in multiple ways. We have a leadership and management course. All residents and fellows take the course. We have a session focused on quality, and actually there's an online blended component and an in-class. The online component of the particular relevant session of our leadership course does use a case example of PT referral. They are, we were talking before we started recording, all the bad things are matters of public record, so I'm not going to air that here on the podcast. For our residents, we use an actual case. 
this is what happened. This is the actual sanction. And we refer them to the Federal Register then to read what happened and what the sanction was. And then we discuss that in the leadership course. During the chemistry rotation, we put them together with our quality specialists in, in one of our divisions to review PT failures and, and responses. So that's our approach in part, a course room component in our leadership course, and then during chemistry rotation, the actual review of failed surveys. I think that's phenomenal. I love the idea of um, doing a leadership management course and that you really have everybody there in the room. And I imagine that um, making it based on a real case uh, certainly brings authenticity to it, but also uh, I'm jealous for the conversations that probably come out mm -hmm. in those, right? It's, it's by having everybody in the room, there's a lot more of a community that can get some of those different perspectives out on the table. Yeah, I mean, again, it goes into our, our leadership course approaches, multiple subjects and regulatory accreditation issues, one of them, but they generally have an online blended component and a discussion component, and it's been a very effective way to teach what can be, and we started out drier subjects, not as glamorous as uh, organ organ transplant, HLA issues, and other things, the massive transfusion. <laughs> You're making my heart go pitter-patter. <laughs> massive transfusion <laughs> protocols that are kind of the heart of, like, well, this is cool stuff. But we make it alive by using cases and um, having a blended both online learning and discussion session. Phenomenal. We've been rounding with Dr. Karen about PT referrals. Thank you for taking the time to discuss this topic with us, Dr. Karen. Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu and reference this podcast. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations. Mm -hmm.